0: Welcome to the Bad Roman Podcast. On this show, we talk with veterans, community leaders, Christians, and non-Christians as we explore the entanglement of Christians with the state. The Bad Roman Project was created out of the firm belief that as Christians, we are called to follow Christ, not the state. Here is your host, Craig Hargis.
1: Hey folks, today we are going to talk about the evils of war brought on by the state. I've seen several commercials recently from the Wounded Warrior Project. I don't have anything against them personally and the work that they are doing, but I kept saying to myself that it didn't have to be this way every time I would see their commercials. If not for the state, these wars would not be happening. So I reached out to a couple of buddies of mine who have seen it firsthand as someone who has served. I wanted to get their perspective because it's going to be different than what the average American has. Welcome back to the show of Nicholas Harrelson and for the first time on the show, Eric
2: Campbell. Hey,
1: folks. I just wanted to give y'all a heads up before we start the episode that we had some technical difficulties with sound, but our producer was able to clean it up nicely. You just may need to listen a little closer in some spots. That being said, this episode is still well worth the listen. Thanks so much for listening. And I think y'all will really enjoy this conversation. Now the show. I'm glad y'all are here. I really appreciate y'all coming on and doing this and, and talking to me about this because Y'all are going to have a different perspective than I do. And most people listen to this because not everybody's ever served. You know, I know a lot of people that have served, including you too, but the stories that I hear from guys that have served are heartbreaking to me. And I think that it's, it's something that we need to talk about more because we see these commercials and they are putting people up on these commercials that have been maimed. I mean, by war and these wars, just didn't, to, in my opinion, did not, have to happen and would have never happened if it wasn't for the evils of the state, Eric, since this is your first time on the show, I'm going to let you give us some background of yourself and tell us what your duties were and what your rank was in the, in the military while you served.
0: So I've got a, I've got about 20 plus years in before I finally got out. Um, I was a, a professional national guardsman. I attained the rank of E-5 sergeant. I was at the time of getting out a uh, a radio operator would be the easiest way to say it. Um, There was more to it than that, but I was a communications specialist for a signal company. And uh, basically it's a non-combat role, um, but we... Did everything the phone company did. That That's, yeah. Everything the phone company could do, we could do, but we would set it up, you know, within a day. So you could have video chat and your telephones and, you know, calling your, your baby mama back in the States and stuff like that whenever you wanted to within a day. So that's basically what, what I did.
1: All right, cool. So, Nicholas, I want you to give us the background and what your rank and what your duties were as well. And after that, I want both of y'all to, Kind of give us what, what was your motivation behind joining the military? Nicholas, why don't you give us some background?
2: Yes. Yeah, so my name is uh, Nicholas Harrelson. I was in the Virginia National Guard for six years as an 11 Bravo infantryman. Um, I was uh, assigned to uh, on my first deployment to Iraq, a uh, scout infantry platoon. And, uh, and then on my second deployment to Iraq, I was with a line infantry company. Both times, I was a 50 caliber machine gunner doing a convoy security operation, Um, and I was wounded on my second tour in uh, October of 2011. Uh, I had some specific jobs that I did uh, on those deployments. I was the uh, counter IED specialist for my maneuver element, my platoon, uh, on my second deployment. My first deployment, I was the RTO, so uh, I also dealt with uh, radios uh, with my platoon and my maneuver element. And uh guys like Eric were either blessings or absolute pains in my butt. I'm sure our wonderful friend Eric here was one of those blessings. <laughs> but yeah, so um I was in Iraq uh in oh uh, nine and ten, and then I was part of the complete drawdown in two thousand and eleven uh, and back in uh uh, January of 2012 after uh all combat forces withdrew from the country.
1: Well that's interesting.
2: Did, did they all actually withdraw though? No, not at all. It was just a nice little 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 bow tie political statement that made things look nice and clean. Okay, that's
1: I was curious when you said that because I was I was under the impression that we were still over there. Eric, didn't you did, were you in Iraq or Afghanistan?
0: I, I was in Iraq. Iraq. I was in Iraq. And you
1: uh did you serve before Nicholas or around the same time?
0: Uh, I was in Iraq in 2000, I want to say, I want to say it was around 2004,
1: 2005. Okay. So, and you said you had 20 years in. So, let, let me ask you this. What was your reasoning for getting in to the military or joining the military?
0: The, the number one reason, absolutely, the number one reason was G.I. Joe the Cartoon.
2: <laughs> that is the best <laughs> reason I might have ever heard.
0: <laughs> yeah. It was,
2: it was, I mean,
0: I I, I wasn't a good student in school. I was, you know, D's and F's all through school. Didn't have, you know, white trash background. Didn't have many goals, you know, didn't have a lot. And these freaking recruiters, (laughs) they are gold. You know, I I was a big nerd, always been a big nerd. And G.I. Joe was that, you know, was that big. I'm an 80s kid, so that was... That was a big part of my life was, you know, collecting G.I. Joe action figures and and watching the cartoon and stuff like that. And it just hung on me. And I remember going to the recruitment station at 17 and talking about stuff like that. And the recruiter just he sold me on it and he used he used that cartoon straight up to, to sell me on enlisting. I was, I was a guarantee. Hey, saw you
1: coming a mile away. Did you have a GI Joe t-shirt on when you walked into this office or no,
0: no. it wasn't that obvious. No, it wasn't that obvious, but I, I was, I was all about it. So, so did you get
1: in before everything went down like before nine 11 or was it?
0: Oh, it was way before. So I enlisted in 92. Oh, okay. Um. Yeah. So this was right at the end of the first Gulf war. So I was, by, I, you know, I was, I was buying all the patriotism of the first Gulf War, so that was Bush Senior, and and I was I was sold on it, and you know excited to go do my duty for my nation, and I, you know, I, I honestly believed it was going to be just like GI Joe. We were going to all get code names and shoot blue and red lasers at each other, and the whole kit and caboodle. So
1: and so you were in at the end of the first Gulf for you said and I, I think you and I talked about this before but you were you were in the in the second Gulf for because my stepdad was in the in the first Gulf for, and you and I talked about some of y'all's funny PTSD things like y'all have some similar uh similar PTSDs that are that your kids find funny
0: <laughs> yeah 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 yeah, I have a I have a toenail thing. I, I don't want people touching my toenails. I don't even want to talk about people touching my toenails.
1: <laughs> when you told me that, and I and I told
0: my stepdad
1: that, and he goes, he goes, ask your mom. I've got the same thing going on too. <laughs> it,
0: it, it's got to be an OCD thing, and it, it it just drives me at the wall. And it it came right out of it came out of right, right out of Iraq. So
1: Nicholas, what was your what was your reasoning or motivation for joining the military?
2: First, let me say, uh, our friend Eric Campbell is old as dirt. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't often meet too many Gulf War veterans who are, uh, you know, still hanging on in the military when I was there. So uh, that was surprising. And then, then to cap it off with the whole toenail thing, um, also, also interesting. <laughs> I can, uh, I can appreciate the uniqueness of that particular phobia
1: you don't have a you don't have an issue with your toenails being touched
2: nah man i'm cool with it i mean i mean you know, like, I, I don't want just some random dude walking up and touching my toenails you know, questions will be asked if that's the case uh but you know I'm, I'm i'm all right with it i reckon uh theoretically yeah so you know it's interesting man i was actually um uh against the iraq war I was uh, an anti-war Democrat, one of those rare birds that it's, you know. I don't even know that, that that bird exists anymore. Yeah, so I was uh, I was very much against the Iraq War. Um, I remember sitting in my bed at two a.m. watching the bombs dropping over Baghdad. But you know, I, I grew up in the South. I'm a history major, and I went to a military school, so I have an appreciation for discipline and the the history of uh, military service. Um, and, you know, I got sold on the idea of serving one's country, despite disagreeing with certain aspects of, of how it's run or, um, of, of politics and, and stuff, like, you know, because we, the military is one of the few institutions of government that is still fairly universally looked upon in a good way. You know, um, both Democrats and Republicans tend to to view the military in, in high esteem. And so I still I still had that mentality, you know, that that I still wanted to serve my country and uh, and, and do something, be a part of something bigger than myself. And I think that that's what kind of ultimately overrode my misgivings about the Iraq war. So did you join before the Iraq war or like after 9-11? Uh, 9-11 was, I think, I think I was a sophomore or a junior. I, uh, I wanted to to go ahead and enlist in the military, but my, my parents convinced me otherwise. And so I went to, um, Virginia Military Institute as a cadet and I got bored, you know, playing toy soldier every day. And, uh, and so I decided to be a great idea to enlist and go down to Fort Benning, Georgia for my summer break in between, uh, my sophomore and junior, junior year. And um, that was that was an awful decision, but yeah.
1: Well, you weren't as lucky as Eric because I'm pretty sure he had to go. He trained in Texas, which is the greatest state in the union, and he uh, he got he was blessed to be able to go to train there, from what I understand, right, Eric?
0: Well, I I mean, so Fort Hood became a for our for our um, Italian Fort Hood was the the go to for our uh, two weeks of training in the National Guard. Um, I was in the regular army at the very beginning of my enlistment and Fort hood was my last duty station. Originally went to Fort McClellan, Alabama for basic training and advanced individual training, AIT. Um, And that was, well, I can immediately go into it because one of the biggest reasons I hate Texas is because I could not get away from that place. I I ended up stationed there, you know, coming out of the regular army and transitioning into the National Guard. And I was like, thank God I can finally put this place behind me and then come to find out, oh, no, my National Guard unit constantly trains at Fort Hood and would constantly go back. Every single summer would end up back at Fort Hood. And it just I hate Texas.
1: (laughs) I totally tried to goad you into the whole Texas thing and you did not buy it worth it.
2: Congratulations. All right, Craig, a couple things here, Craig. I've always said Texas would be a wonderful place if it weren't for all the Texans there. All right. And two, if I'd have gotten a letter from the Army telling me I had to report to a duty station in Texas, I'd have gone ahead and moved to Canada.
1: It's interesting because Texans don't really even uh, consider anybody else's alive in this world other than Texans. So- I didn't know y'all hated us. Actually, when I first moved to Arkansas, I it was it was such a surprise to me that people hated Texas. Like, born and raised in Texas, I thought everybody loved us. I mean, it's Texas. I mean, it's the greatest thing that God ever created. I mean, as Stephen from Anarcho-Christian says, he rested in the hill country of Texas on the seventh day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What do we
2: call that, Texas exceptionalism? Well, we just call it Texas well, I'll, I'll go with that, and 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 to, to be quite frank, I've been to Texas, and uh, although it was half of my trip from Virginia to Arizona, it seemed like uh, <laughs> the people the people were friendly. Uh, as you have mentioned, they did like talking about Texas, uh, which did get old very quick. But you know, it, it, they have some wonderful smoked meats. Um, as opposed to real barbecue found in North Carolina. Oh, man. It was delicious. But uh, all in all, I can't only, – I only joke about uh, disliking Texas with such a passion.
0: No, I, I honestly
2: hate it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 Eric's just going to be
1: honest here. Right, we have gone way off track here because – because I I think I started that on purpose. I I had intended to, but I didn't know how deep into the conversation we were going to go <laughs> before I started that. But I'm glad we got it out of the way, and we can we can come back to it later after y'all are convinced of of Texas being the greatest state ever. Oh, God. So let's get back to what y'all saw as why y'all were serving. Now things that we don't see on mainstream media. And I, honestly, I don't think we even see it anymore on mainstream. Media. It's like it's become such a regular part of our lives now that we're just in perpetual war, and it's never ending. And so now it's just a thing. It's just a thing that that America's involved with. And now we're we're focused on other things like COVID nineteen, and now Ginsburg dying and from the Supreme Court. You know things, but but it, even before all that, it's like it just kind of disappeared from the news. Why do y'all think that has disappeared? Because I think it needs to be more in our face about what's actually going on, what we're doing as as a country, in other countries, and what 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 did y'all see? What what were the evils that y'all see that we do not that we're not exposed to by watching the news, Eric?
0: So this is this is going to be kind of unique because Nick. Will have seen a completely different side of the war than I did, which which is which is fascinating to me because I, I was what was called a fobit. Um, I, I stayed inside the base most of the time. Uh, we did do a couple of um, walkabouts. They were just really simple patrols. Hey, we're here. Don't forget that we're here. That kind of you know shows of if, we called them shows of force, but they were shows of intimidation. So it's, it's gonna kind of be fascinating because it's gonna be neat hearing from his side because he was a combat guy. For me, we really got to know, we really got to know a lot of the locals. So the, the, the base I was at was uh, Fob Kalsu, and it was just a big hole in the ground. The Marines were operating. It, it had been a, a communications base at one point and then the first war it was taken out in the first war and saddam hussein just never bothered to rebuild it and so from what i understand the marines that came through the marines like yeah this is a good spot for us to set up and they set it up and then we started moving in our our mission was to support the marines communications network so we hooked up with the marines and we um, helped um, expand and develop their communications network like i said we were effectively the telephone company Uh, we were telecommunications so anything video satellite all that kind of stuff we we handled at the time i I was a hardline republican i mean almost to a, a fascist extent i mean the government could do no wrong and so when i'm when I went to Iraq, I went with that mentality. We were right. We were the ones, you know, they're all evil. Everybody over there was evil, you know, in my mind. And, and that's what we were effectively being told. I mean, we were conditioned to believe that everything over there was just vile and evil and, and the whole kit and caboodle. However, we got to know these people. And, and that was the danger for the state was getting to know who these people are our first mission me and my buddy um we had to guard a tent and we were a layover place for a lot of the truck drivers running um supplies and and things like that and these were locals so these are iraqis that were driving trucks but running supplies for the military and um they were just truck drivers and we would our job was just to babysit them at night. Cause they didn't want to run them at night because they would get hit by IEDs because insurgents would know that these guys were working for us. And that was a big no, no. Yeah. So these guys would uh, be in that. There'd be like, it, it's a, it's like a 60 man tent, but there'd be 90 guys all piled up in there. And these guys were truck drivers. I mean, every um, stereotypical idea you have of a truck driver, these guys were in it. They were, political jokes, dirty jokes, sharing porn, they were just dirty, rotten, everyday truck drivers. And it was, it was my first eye opening at what these guys were. And then on top of that, these guys weren't even religious. We were told, Oh no, the whole country is very, very religious. And they're, you know, you, you've got to do this and you've got to do that. And you've got to be careful what you say and how you say it and all these things. And out of those 90 guys that were piled up in the tent, only five of them left to do their daily prayers. And and we were just got to know these guys right off the bat. And that's probably my first, you know, key. And it was like, something's wrong here. And um, it was getting to know these everyday people. Cause we're, we're Fab Cal was, it was, nothing but farm country around us we weren't in a city we weren't we weren't dealing with you know all the city politics guys up in baghdad you know we weren't dealing with things like that everybody around us were just normal everyday farmers you know you'd hear the calls of prayer but nobody would bother going out to pray or anything like that and um it was just normal people and so even when we went out on our patrols we just met normal everyday people And it shook me to the foundation because I was like, I was, I was lied to. And it was shocking to me because I didn't, I didn't think I would be lied to. I mean, this propaganda machine that started, I mean, it started in the church and and it was in, it was on TV and it was told to us in our training about how religious these people were and how so much this, this, all this and it was just a lie. These were normal everyday people just struggling to survive. And we ruined that. We ruined that. We ruined it. We ruined it because when I started talking to these men and, and hearing their stories and hearing their struggles, it was heartbreaking because a lot of the things that we were there doing was causing the problems. We were the ones, causing the difficulty we were the ones interrupting life and I was trying to oh no we're bringing you democracy and these guys were like no we had democracy <laughs> it was just, yeah they had Saddam Hussein and he was this evil dictator and he did evil things and we hear all the evil stories about what these guys did and I understand that but our translator I don't know for us our translators they gave us they gave them um American names because we couldn't say because stupid Americans can't speak Arabic So they they gave him American names our translators. His name was Kevin and Kevin was a really cool guy He spoke really well English a uh, really good English and um, He was married to a woman. She was Greek Orthodox So he was Islamic. He was Greek Orthodox and we were told there were no Christians in Iraq and he's like Oh, no, there's there's it's, it was it was prevalent. It was everywhere Christianity was everywhere. And I'm like, what? <laughs> it blew my mind. Cause that wasn't the line we were being told. And he said the biggest problem that happened was when we invaded, he had to hide his wife and his family because the Sunni immediately started hunting down and killing and, and attacking the Christians. Saddam Hussein had kept the peace and it kept things like that from happening. But when we came in and we interrupted that, we destroyed that dynamic, you know, evil dictator or not, he, he kept the peace. They started hunting down Christians and he had to hide his family away because they were Christian. And then he started working with us. And I was like, hold on. I I didn't think y'all were allowed to do these things. And he's like, oh no, no, no. And that's when I he, he'd advised me, hey, you need to pick up you need to pick up a, a copy of the Quran. And I was like, okay, you know, I was open. I've always been a generally open-minded guy. And I was like, okay, I'll get me a Quran. And I, I start reading the Quran and I'm like going, where are all these verses about killing, you know, Americans and killing this. And, and he's like, it's not in there, you know? And we, when we started talking, I'm realizing, Hey, there are, it cemented that idea in me that these people are just regular everyday people. And that, just like how christianity is manipulated and used by the state to point us in a certain direction that the state one is in islam is being used the same way and being manipulated and used by the state in the same way by political actors that want certain goals met and and when i started talking this guy it, it just wasn't like that this this guy wanted peace he wanted Prosperity for his family. He he had goals and he, he had love and and he wanted things for his family that were exactly like the things that I wanted for my family. And it was it was probably midway through our tour, and Kevin didn't just operate with us. He 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 bounced between different um, companies and, and worked with them. But he had he was bring being brought on to the base. And, um, he, he was with, um, about 30 other guys. They were loaded up in, in, um, uh, five ton trucks being brought on the base. We would go out, pick these guys up and bring them on the base to work or to sell stuff in our bazaar and stuff like that. And, um, somebody, a new worker was coming on with them. but apparently this worker was strapped with explosives. And as soon as he hit the gate, he blew himself up. And, um, killed a bunch of these guys and ripped the guts out of Kevin. And, um, it was probably one of the biggest explosions that had hit our, I remember that morning, you you just had muscle memory when you heard an explosion, our, our fob was attacked so often you just woke up. And when you heard these explosions, you, you would wake up inside a bomb shelter. It was just muscle memory just to get you to the bomb shelter because you knew there was a rocket attack happening or there was a mortar attack happening or something like that. So we'd heard that explosion. We were in the bomb shelter and then we start peeking out because we didn't hear any more explosions. And we saw this black smoke coming from our, our front gate and everybody starts charging the front gate and they're screaming at us. No, no, get back, get back, get back, get back. And, um, a bunch of confusion and then NCOs start stepping out and screaming at people to calm down and get back and them start handling stuff. And I remember there as throughout the day, as they're cleaning up the process and trying to investigate what happened and stuff, the blood from the front gate to our chow hall, because beyond our chow hall was our mass unit, our, our hospital facility. Um, it was just covered in blood. I, I I've, I've never seen so much blood in my life. And and it was so shocking. And and so, I mean, it's, it's something out of some kind of horror movie, but the blood was this covered the road and our, it was the only tarmac road in our fob and it was covered in about an inch of mud and dust. And it was just, it was just blood all the way to that mash unit where, you know, they're trying to rescue guys and, and identify bodies and all that kind of stuff like that. And, uh, it was, it was just, it's burnt in my mind. I won't forget. And, and, and it didn't go away. They, they, they brought out these water trucks to try to wash the mud and, and stuff away. And it was like that for a week, you know, just this red taint to the, to the dirt there. But we, we didn't see Kevin. We knew Kevin was with them. We didn't see Kevin again for a while. And, and we were, we were nervous. We'd heard rumors about what had happened to Kevin. We'd heard he died, but then he shows up and he was working. He had a cousin or something that worked in our bazaar. And it was just where the locals Iraqis came to sell us pirated stuff and um, rugs and things like that. And we met up with Kevin there and we was like, oh, he was in a wheelchair and he was like, Oh man. And we start talking to him and he's like, yeah, he lost a big chunk of his intestines in the explosion. And, and we were like, Oh man. So we start giving him money. Um, immediately we start giving him money. And our superiors have a fit about it. You, you can't give this guy money. You, you can't be doing it. We was like, well, he's one of us. He was one of us. You know, he'd gone out patrols with some of the guys. He'd worked with us. And he was like, no, he, he doesn't work in that capacity. You cannot be giving him money. We were devastated. We were like, why can't we help this guy? Why can't we do it? This this man's goal was to get his family to the states, to get them out of that country, to get them a better life and get them to the states. And and here we're being told, no, you can't help this man. And we was like, he, he can't get paid anymore. He can't work as a translator anymore because he's bound to this wheelchair. And it, it was... We were a bunch of National Guardsmen. We were a bunch of good old boys from Arkansas. And it was just against our nature because this guy had become our friend and we were being told not to help him we had one lieutenant that came to us and said look this is what we got to do and we were able to circumnavigate the regulations and get this guy some money and the last time i heard was was he had finally made it to the states i I think i talked to him a couple of times over email and this was Years and years ago that he, he and his family finally made it to the States, which was, you know, a happy ending. But I, I, I can already hear people going, well, you know, that's not, that's not y'all's fault. Y'all didn't cause this. Y'all didn't do that. That was that evil insurgent that blew all those guys up. And I'm like, but what would have happened if we wouldn't have been there? It wasn't like it was hard for people to leave Iraq. He, he was a professor in Baghdad. He had he'd gone to school in the United States. He, he had goals. He had already been in a place prior to us coming into the country where he would have left eventually on his own accord and got to the States. But now, because of our actions, because we invaded a country for no other reason to other than to satisfy Bush Sr.'s original goal, this man's guts are ripped out you know and he's bound to a wheelchair for the rest of his life and his wife and his daughter have to deal with that for the rest of his life so even if this insurgent was the one that did it this insurgent was only reacting to something that we were already there doing
1: i think that's i think that is exactly what is misunderstood with all this and you said that when you first went over there that you were a hardline Republican. Whenever everything went down on 9-11, I was a hardline Republican. I stayed that way for 16 years until Trump was nominated. And I was of the same opinion. Now, I didn't serve, but I was of the same opinion that everything that we were being fed by our government, you know, the government's not wrong about this. They are all evil over there. We have to go over there and fix this for them. And like I said in the beginning, it did not have to be this way. That's a horrible story. <laughs> And I appreciate you sharing it with us, but I think it really exemplifies what is going on there that people don't recognize and they just buy into what the government tells them, what mainstream media tells them. And this is why I wanted you guys to come on. I wanted you guys to come on and tell your story so people could hear like what happened firsthand, like what y'all saw. And like you said, they were regular people. We've talked about this several times on this podcast. That this is still God's creation, even if they live in Iraq or Afghanistan or wherever, and none of this had to happen. And if it wasn't for the state, if it was not for government, this would have never happened. And I really appreciate you sharing that with us, man. That was that was that was a lot to <laughs> to take in. But man, I really appreciate it, and I can't wait to hear this again. You know, when when we we share the episode, but Nicholas, why don't you uh, why don't you uh, See if you
2: can follow that up. Yeah, you know, uh, funny enough, I actually got blown up right outside of FOB Kelsey, Tech Point Eleven Bravo, on MSR Tampa, uh, heading southbound. I was stationed at uh, Talil Air Base, Cobb Adder, which was the uh, the Army uh, portion of that base. You know, being being convoy security uh, and and being a fifty caliber machine gunner. I didn't get a whole lot of interaction with the locals, um, you know, and and one of the things that uh, you know Craig was talking about initially, the the fact that we are now it seems to be engrossed in conflict, as they call it, in, into perpetuity with this country. You know, it, it it is no longer normal for there to be complete peace uh, between us and the rest of the world, and and that is no longer talked about. And I think that's the point. I think the point is that they they want this to be normalized because it's, it's easier for them to accomplish the goals they want to accomplish when no one cares to really keep tabs on. If you extrapolate that down to the ground where the individual soldier is, I mean, the thing that I noticed was you know, a complete dehumanization of, of others, you know, not necessarily in a malicious way. Like I wouldn't say that there was outright hatred or dislike of the Iraqis from people in my unit. It's just that they were other, they were, they were not us. And, and as such, we only cared about us. You know, we, we wanted to protect ourselves and we wanted to get the job done and so that if that meant that we had to, you know, run cars off the road because they came up too close to the convoy, um, we did that, you know. And if it meant we had to blind people with giant spotlights to get them to like, you know, move further away from our rear vehicle, you know, we did that. If we had to fire warning shots at at vehicles that were fast approaching, we did that. And if you think about it, you know, if someone was in this country doing that to me and my family. I wouldn't take too kindly to it. A lot of the issues that I saw were the effects of war on my friends. I actually, I was lucky enough not to lose any close friends from both of my deployments while, while we were deployed. However, when I came home from my second deployment, after I was wounded and I was recovering from surgeries, I had my best friend and roommate from that deployment committed suicide. Um, And then we've had subsequently four other people commit suicide from that deployment, whether it was suicide by cop or um, just taking their own life by their own hand. That is that has happened. And so, you know, I've seen that that devastating effect. I have seen and, 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 and to delve into that a little bit, there is this untalked about you know aspect of military service that is that is truly a a wonderful experience it really is there's nothing ill i can say about it and that is the camaraderie you have and you develop with other men and women um you know you you really do get into the simplistic almost primitive lifestyle that is that's it's truly, you know, there is a there's a a real focus on survival. And when that is the case, you know, it it really it makes life easy and simple in a way. And so, uh, you know, a lot of these guys will come home and, and they'll get thrust back into this world where, you know, um, they went to war and America went to the mall, you know, and and, and they have no real understanding of how to reintegrate back into this lifestyle that they left way behind, you know, and that, and that happened to me and, and I'm truly lucky that, that I was able to, you know, I'm lucky. And, and by the grace of God, I didn't kill myself whether by accident or, or purposefully going through the experiences that I did coming home. I, I wrote a, a, an essay for a publication, uh, an online magazine uh, a few years back, Talking about uh, my translator and uh, we didn't give him a a mundane uh, Americanized name. We just called him Spider-Man. Don't ask me why. I'm pretty sure he had a Spider-Man t-shirt one day and uh, we just thought, well, no, you're Spider-Man. You know, and uh, I had a wonderful experience with him and another guy from my, uh, my platoon. You know, we we used to run missions up north of Baghdad into the Sunni Triangle. And uh, I believe it was Taji that we we stopped at that night. And, uh, you know, he and I went outside to have a cigarette and, uh, and my buddy came out with us. Most everybody else was already asleep uh, at that point. And uh, we just got to talking. You know, it started off just, uh, you know, normal, I don't know, dudes hanging out, smoking cigarettes in the middle of a war kind of talk, uh, whatever that entailed. Um, I do recall uh, that it was, you know, it was kind of crazy that he he said that he initially decided to become a translator because he knew that it paid really well and uh, and he wanted to buy an air conditioner for his mom. And, uh, you know, that was that was a, a kind of need that I did not identify with. Certainly being a Southern boy, uh, I really enjoyed air conditioning, but I never had a need to take a job so I could afford one. You know, that was that was kind of something that uh, that we always had and we're never really concerned about needing. And so the the conversation, uh, you know, naturally, it it turned into, you know, he he talked about wanting to come to the United States eventually. And that the uh, the single thing he wanted to do the most was to ride a roller coaster. Um, And so, of course, you know, I could identify with that a little bit better. But eventually the conversation turned to religion and it turned out that, uh, you know, I was I was a Christian uh he was a muslim and uh and my other buddy was jewish and so here's a a jewish guy a muslim guy and a christian all sitting hanging out talking about religion and uh it was it was truly you know fascinating to to kind of get a first hand account from each each individual of both the the similarities and the differences of our religion, and we did so in just you know, it was like it was just normal to to sit there and chat, and that was my first real experience putting a human face to to something that had always been other to me. There, something that you know, I I logically understood these are people, and 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 that naturally these people do things similar to me, but I I never was able to appreciate just how similar these people were to me Um, and, and just how much they wanted to just, you know, as, as Eric said, they just wanted to live life and to be left alone. Um, You know, it, it, it really says something about um, our, our conflicts that we bring to other countries when, when they would prefer as opposed to what we give gave them, they would prefer Saddam Hussein's stability. You know, it, it really says like, it says a lot about what our efforts entail and what our goals really are. It's interesting to me, you know, to get, kind of circle back to what Craig was originally talking about and what I mentioned earlier. If, if you're familiar, we actually have not had a declared war in this country since World War II. Every war after World War II has been a conflict. You know whether passed legislatively for like a period of time, the executive was allowed to do this or that. Generally speaking, those conflicts came to an end eventually. Like Congress actually, you know, if there was a if there was legislation passed providing the executive a, a period of time to act um, in a capacity that they could act, they they generally enforced it, and it you know it ended eventually. But we have been in in conflict with the global war on terror for uh, almost 20 years now. And it is the perfect storm of ambiguity that allows for the government to continue to continue doing this into perpetuity. You know, it's 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 the perfect formula for for finding justification for continuing on as we have the last 20 years. And that's unfortunate because so many people get wrapped up into you know the patriotic ideals and uh, the sense of duty and service and ultimately they come out of this this system you know broken individuals who who realize eventually that that maybe maybe you know perhaps their their desire to do good through military service wasn't realized because um, because they were they were you know potentially lied to um, that they were they were absolutely you know um, given kind of a, a false sense of of what their the purpose of these conflicts was and and I think that a lot of veterans have to come to to terms with the fact that you know although they had very personally idealistic reasons potentially for joining that maybe their maybe their service ultimately didn't do good for people um that ultimately their presence just their mere presence in another country caused hardship and pain for for other human beings and i think that that's a you know it's a it's a in many instances an unspoken burden that that people don't acknowledge too often um, you know, most most veterans, we, we talk about how the war affected us. Uh, we don't we don't give a lot of thought, uh, conscious thought, to how the war affected people who didn't ask or volunteer for war. And I think I think subconsciously, at least, if not consciously, that, that's a it's a fairly heavy burden to bear, um, knowing that you have caused, you know, caused hardship in the very least. Um, pain, and, and potentially, you know, unwarranted death, unjustifiable death, I- at the most. Hey folks, Craig here, and I'd like to let y'all know we
1: are always looking for writers to contribute to our blog. I don't care if you have any experience or not. Two or three of our contributors have no prior experience writing, and it turns out they have a real knack for it. Our project coordinator helps them put the articles together, and she publishes them on our website and facebook page and you will also have the option to come on the show and go more in depth about your article so if you like what we're doing at the bad roman and would like to try your hand at writing and send us an email at the bad roman podcast at gmail.com we're having a blast with this project and we would love for you to join us and help promote it now back to the show i'm glad you brought up the fact that we have not been a declared war since World War II. And and I've mentioned that on when I was on the Invictus Mind podcast. If you explain that to people that supposedly want the Constitution followed, and and we, we agree as anarchists that it's a piece of paper and it has no enforcement mechanism other than the people. And so it's just a piece of paper. But I will say this, if the Constitution was actually followed, as the founders set it up, we would not have seen the amount of war we've seen. Do you agree with that? Or do you think that it would
2: have happened regardless, even if it was all declared? I I mean, no, I I really don't. You know, I I think, um, you know, the military, the military industrial establishment, um, you know, I think there's, there's so many redeeming qualities of military service. There really are. However, I think the problem comes in, and this is where, you know, we can have some issues with, government intervention in the free market and, and things like that. We have this desire to perpetuate war because it's profitable.
1: When you say when you when you say we, are you saying like we the people, or are you saying like we the government? The
2: government both. Both. Yes. I mean, because you have you have contractors who are making money hand over fist. So so let me tell you about one of the most infuriating experiences I ever had on deployment. We, we, we would pull up to these uh, um, uh, refueling stations and it would be local nationals who would who would refuel our vehicles. But there'd always be one guy there, an American guy who just kind of sat around and made sure that they didn't like blow up the refueling station by accident. And uh, got to talking to one of those guys one time. He'd been in the army for about four years, got out. And got a contracting job, sitting in a chair all day, watching four local nationals refuel vehicles, making hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, tax free, mind you. And uh, you know that's that alone is you know if you have guys who are just sitting in chairs watching local nationals refuel vehicles making a hundred fifty grand, um, I mean that's a that's a huge impetus to want to like continue having opportunities to do work like that. You know, and that's and that's on the very small scale, um, not small scale, but that's on the ground. Of course, you've got 15 other people between him and, you know, an executive in Triple Canopy or um, Blackwater or some company like that. Uh, on the flip side, as far as government concerned, the other issue is, is when it comes to the military, the military, a lot like government itself is only interested in perpetuating its own size funding and things of that nature. And and they're not going to receive funds for their projects and their, their various things unless there's a use for it. And then unfortunately, when all you have are hammers, we tend to treat things like nails, you know? And so we go around the world with a, a, An unfortunate lack of diplomacy in many instances, or we give up on diplomacy, you know, right off the bat because we know we have an effective military that will just bomb people into submission. And uh, and that's that's generally not the best tactic to get people to see. I mean, sure, they'll see your side temporarily because they don't want, you know, warheads on their foreheads, as they say. But that's not a very effective tactic for for long term. Uh, sustainable relationships and i think we can see that because with every supposed terrorist we kill we create multiples you know and so i don't know man it's it's a it's a nasty cycle where you know your average everyday american gets sucked in in various ways whether it's you know economic whether it's patriotic whether you know there's there's so many different different Avenues that war, conflict, the military-industrial complex—that they're able to suck you in and and get you into that cycle of being a part of the the machine. This is
0: something that I don't think people fully understand, and they don't fully see that there you know we were we were it was beating our head that oh yeah it's not about oil we're not going over there about oil but we, yes we were going over there for oil we had to stabilize. That part of the world, because this all falls back on OPEC, and and OPEC controlling the prices of oil in the world. And there's more to it. I mean, you've always been told, and you always hear the stories about how war makes money, and it and it does. Nick talked about the 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 contractor he was dealing with. We had Halliburton guys in our fob, in and, and looking back at what those guys were doing, I was like, the only reason they were there, because they didn't supply anything for us, the only reason they were there was providing uh, materials and supplies to companies that Burton was supporting over there. It was, it was corporate companies that had vestes, you know, had interests in Iraq, and that's why Burton was there supplying um, building material and, and, and things like that. We couldn't get any of those materials from Halliburton. We were told, you are not allowed to talk to those guys. You're not allowed to deal with those guys. Um, nothing at all. And I'm like, why are they here? Well, looking back at it, we were, we were there protecting those guys. We were protecting Halliburton's interests and, and, by proxy, other companies that were tied to Halliburton. When we go to war, there's so many companies that are tied into and, and belong to that machine um, people, people would be shocked. I, I don't know. Would they be shocked to know that? I mean, would they not just see it as some kind of patriotic duty that these companies have vested interest in supplying and, and providing every aspect, every aspect of the military? There's some company now that is tied to it. In it, and Nicholas might be able to talk about this, but. It used to not be so ingrained. Companies used to not be so ingrained in how the military operated and where it got its supplies from. But but nowadays, I it's just as a camo guy. Every piece of equipment that we worked on or utilized was built and, and purchased and and developed by some corporate entity, and, and we had we had transitioned to. Three different platforms prior to going to Iraq within a two-three year period. Uh, that's an immense amount. Our, our trucks, our trucks were around sixty million a piece. You know, 60000000 dollars a piece, and they were just Humvee trucks. But it was all the commo equipment and the cryptography and, and 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 things like that that went into those signal trucks. It's an insane amount of money that's being. Made
1: as somebody that was on the outside looking in, as somebody that was in full support of our war efforts. After I mean, I was all about it. I'm a—I will readily admit that I was a full-blown neocon. Now, there would be people, and it was—it was always a libertarian too. <laughs> we were—we're we're over there for the oil, and I would always just brush that aside, like that's nonsense. We're not—we're over there trying to spread freedom. We're trying to teach these people about freedom. It was was always talked about, not not on the mainstream, but like people on the outside, like trying to explain to me that we're not there protecting these people or helping these people. We're there for the oil. And I would always just brush it aside. And I think that's how the majority of Americans view that is they're not going to listen to that garbage or it's garbage to them. Whether it's truth, but it's garbage to them or because... That's not what their favorite politicians telling them. You know what I'm saying? Like George Bush would tell us that we're over there because if we don't kill them there, they're going to kill us over here. You know, so, and, and so that was what was our focus. Now, if we were protecting oil and our gas prices were down in the process, that's awesome. That's all we thought about. We weren't thinking about the people that were dying at the hands of our government because we were trying to protect
2: the oil. Nick, let's go ahead. Yeah. So, you know, one of the interesting things that's come out recently, um, it's called the Afghan Papers. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what it's called. And it is uh, pretty much uh, uh, an in-depth, very in-depth account of evidence that the military completely uh, strung along the public and the government in order to just perpetually continue the mission in Afghanistan and Iraq as a means of continuing to receive funding. And so it was a huge deal. You know, very I mean it was it was completely damning report. But so
1: let me ask you this so like with the Afghan papers nobody's talking about that.
2: Yeah, I was about to say nobody cared. You know, there was there was some talk about it for a little bit and then and then everybody just, you know, kind of forgot about it. And that's the point. Like they that's they have quite literally made war and conflict a completely normal aspect of day-to-day life. And, and only in the sense that Americans don't have to think about it. We we really don't. We, we go to school and uh, you know, we go out to restaurants and we go shopping and uh, you know, we might occasionally hear about something that happens in Afghanistan or Iraq, but nobody, nobody cares. It falls on deaf
1: ears. It's very frustrating to me. And even on the small platform with this podcast, I think we need to have more conversations like this, even if it reaches one person that's kind of on the fence about what we're talking about, because it does not make, all right, we have to, we have to start looking at the United States government as the aggressor, always has been the aggressor in all of this. I didn't used to believe that. Like I said, I thought we were spreading freedom. We were teaching people about freedom by going over there and dropping bombs <laughs> in their <laughs> country. Which is asinine when you when you look back on it. But we have to we have to at some point recognize that the United States government is the aggressor in all of these conflicts.
0: Always. Always been the aggressor.
1: Every single freaking time. And stop thinking about Iraq or Afghanistan, those normal people that Eric talked about. Just trying to live their lives like we're trying to live our lives. They didn't want any part of this, but the United States government had to put push our will on them for freedom. Go ahead, Eric.
0: There's there's no rationale behind ever going into Iraq or even Afghanistan. There's no sensible, logical rationale. You you can make you can make arguments for World War World War One and World War Two, which I, I don't want to go into, but you can make arguments for those. You know, Hitler was an evil man, and he was spreading his evil, and he was killing Jews, and he was doing horrible, wicked things. And, and we can talk about that, but you cannot apply those same same things to, to Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein didn't command his troops to come to the United States and invade Vermont. You know, he, he wasn't stealing... Freedoms, and, and when I started looking at those things, I'm like, "Why are we here? What rationale? What really? What really did this man do?" And I can remember th- because I enlisted during the first Gulf War, Fort McClellan, Alabama, and our drill sergeants, you know, walking us into. Um, the uh, nerve agent chamber, because I, I originally enlisted as a chemical operations specialist, and we would walk into the, uh, uh, when we were walking in the nerve agent chamber, the drill sergeant's pointing out the picture to the, of Saddam Hussein, who trained in Fort McClellan, Alabama, on chemical, biological, and nuclear warfare. We trained the man. And then, and then going back and learning that, you know, we put that man in in that position. We were the ones that tore down a, 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 a government and installed Saddam Hussein. He worked for us. And then I, my mind was blown when I started looking into these things and remembering stories and then sitting in Iraq and, and trying to justify, trying to find a reason why we were there. And I could not find... Solid, reasonable justifications. Maybe if I would have been in World War II and, and, and saw the things that the Nazi Party was doing, it might be different, you know, because they were trying to expand that evil across, you know, Europe and, and even into the United States and things. But I did not see that in Iraq. I didn't see that. I, I it wasn't there.
1: Well, our, our very own government has a very has done a fantastic job of creating enemies on purpose to keep this going. I mean, you just talked about Saddam Hussein. What about Bin Laden? Weren't we didn't did we support him at one time when when Russia was over there fighting in Afghanistan?
0: We supported. We supported. He was he was paid for and trained by the the, the CIA or, or whoever.
1: <laughs> so now, and now and now he's the enemy. The complete insanity of all this has got to be. Understood by people, it doesn't make any sense anymore. It never did, but if you can look at it rationally, none of it, it, it doesn't make any sense. Twenty years later, like Nicholas said, twenty years later, we're still doing it, and it's 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 a normal day. It's a normal day in American lives that we have troops in other countries for what? And then they come back in caskets. They come back maimed. They come back broken. And like Nicholas said, he has some, he has some buddies that commit suicide. That's heartbreaking. We have to end this at some point. We have to stop this because it is not, it's not working. What we thought we were doing is we're going in reverse. Nick, let's go ahead.
2: Yeah. Before we, uh, before we end things here, I just, you know, I, I want to come at it from a, a different angle as well. Um, full disclosure, I'm still affiliated with the military. Um, I am pursuing chaplaincy um, in the military. Uh, and, uh, you know, have struggled mightily with um, my personal beliefs about war and conflict and and violence in general um, with the idea of military service. And I've struggled because there is a desperate need for chaplains and mental health and so on and so forth care for men and women in the military who experience these things and come back broken and you know lost
1: let me let me me say something real quick before i lose my train of thought what what you're doing is different because if you go look like even at the early church there were people there were christians that were in the military they weren't carrying weapons they were serving you know what i'm saying and that's what you're doing that's that's different
2: well you know i so so absolutely i um when they when they told me they said you know uh you have a lot of medical issues. Uh, you know, are you? Can we tell the medical board that you solely intend to be a chaplain because that might help your case uh, for getting commissioned? And I said, not only can you tell them that, but that is quite literally the only thing I'm willing to do. And absolutely nothing wrong with that. Yeah, and and that's because it is a completely. Uh, non-combatant unarmed role. Well, you shouldn't have any, you shouldn't, I don't, I don't want you to, I, I hope you don't
1: struggle with that any, any longer because there's nothing wrong with that, man. I actually respect it.
2: I struggle with the idea that, you know, I will be wearing the uniform and will potentially be in other countries. Um, and and sometimes just our mere presence can cause hardship and, and things like that for, for locals who, and, and so that, that's where my, my burden still, still lies somewhat. Now, you know what I'm hoping to do, and and this is in the works now. Um, I'm hoping to be assigned to uh, a, a 20th Group Special Forces uh, in the National Guard as a chaplain. I'm much more um, content supporting a unit of that type because their primary role is to teach. Um, I don't know if if most people are familiar with uh, the Green Berets and Special Forces, but when you think of them you often think of like direct action close quarters combat and things like that but in reality special forces primary mission is to teach and so you know i can get on board with that and and generally these these guys are are you know trained in in such a way that they have to deal and interact and build relationships with people um on the ground from other countries and so like That brings with it a a lot different uh, mentality than your average everyday infantryman who's sitting behind a 50 caliber machine gun and has never spoken to anyone who speaks primarily Arabic and uh, and never will. You know, it's it's just a completely different mentality Um, and it requires people to be much more prudent about their use of violence and their. Um, their use of force because when you're a 12 man detachment sitting in the middle of nowhere with no support, you rely on the locals to help you. And if you, and if you make the wrong decision, if you upset someone by uh, I don't know, accidentally killing a a neighbor or something like that, you're going to feel the repercussions in very serious ways. And so, you know, these guys get, get trained to a different level and, and are, and they, they, they have a different thought process. And so that's my hope. Um, And I'm hoping that, you know, I can use my experience being a a combat wounded veteran, having, having served in in Iraq multiple times, having lost friends as a result of uh, PTSD and, and the burdens that they carried from their experiences I'm hoping I can use that to to help others. Now, I want to the last thing I'll say, and and I've I've actually I gave a presentation in my uh, my ROTC class on Smedley Butler, um, which was great. But the, the primary argument of my presentation was, is who has more of a vested interest in whether a conflict is justifiable or not than the average American soldier who's going to fight it? like like honestly do you do like uh, war should be the last resort of of failed diplomacy it should not be just another tool in the toolkit to be used because american men and women will die and so will and and, and to no less important degree other people from other countries like when you decide to, to go to war, people will die. And there be, better be a very good reason, just, just socially, there better be a very good reason. But if you're a Christian, uh, it, it better be, it, you better be confident that when you pass one day and you're standing at the pearly gates, that you got some pretty doggone good reasons for doing what you did. That's awesome, dude.
1: And my prayers are with you, man. I, I really, really appreciate what you're doing, and you have my full support. I think that's that. Think that is great, and we need more folks like Nicholas. <laughs> Eric, do you have anything else you'd like to add before we end?
0: Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just to just add on, you you would be surprised. You would be utterly shocked about. The, the amount of uh, of men and women in the military that believe like we believe that that hold our same values that hold our same convictions you would be you'd be shocked
1: I think that needs to be understood as well because and, and I like talking to folks like y'all because y'all have came from that side of it and now are anarchists and y'all have different ideals than what you first held and like you said I think there's more people like us in the military, but we don't hear about it. And it's so, it's so pushed aside.
0: No, no. in and, and, and you're right. There's a, there's a culture that you have to deal with and, and you have to keep your head down a lot of times, but, but coming out and looking in and then later on talking to guys and, 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 and discussing those things, there's a, there's a strong, You can look at the stats. They're just libertarians. You're you're straight-up, everyday um, JoJo libertarians. There's a strong amount of of those men and women in the military that that hold those values, that, that, you know, war should be the last thing. It's not something that we desire. It's not something that the military man wants, you know? And and there's such a misconception between those guys that are functioning and working in the daily operations and the guys sitting up in the Pentagon and the guys sitting in Washington, D.C., you know, shooting down the orders. There's a complete disconnect in in that reality. And and I'm not saying that this is a majority. It's not a majority, but they're there and and they're working to not undermine authority, not tear down the system. They're there to help and ensure that people are being taken care of the right way, the moral way, as, as best as they can do in their given situation. And what Nicholas is doing, yeah, I mean, regardless of how I feel now, you know, being out of the military looking in, I, I, I 100 support, 100% support, one hundred support what Nicholas is doing, 100%. That, that's an awesome, admirable position. That's a missionary position going into a dangerous place and and, and and being that kind of person that's that's missionary work. I mean that that's you know that's Paul in the Bible level kind of stuff there and it's just, that's awesome.
1: I don't, I don't remember if it was the last round table that we had, but it was me and Nicholas and, and Scott Goldman and Nicholas went on this tangent while we were talking and, and I, when he was done I said, if there's any doubt in anybody's mind right now that Nicholas is not called by God, to do these things, you can you can just shut up now because this this guy's he's got it going on. All right,
2: I've reached my maximum quota for compliments today. Any, <laughs> <laughs> my head's going to expand to a size that my wife is going to be. No, uncomfortable I'm just going to
1: rail on you about Texas barbecue and how great Texas is. And then we can start arguing about that.
2: Ooh, I'll just mute you until I don't see any more squiggly lines.
1: <laughs> All right, guys. i um, Eric, do you have anything you want to plug? I know you've got a blog that you work on from time to time. If you want to share that with us,
0: nah, nah, it's more niche gaming and stuff like that. It's kind of outside of your your realm. If you wanted to talk about that later on, I mean,
1: there's all kinds of people that listen to this podcast. They they might be interested in, in reading about it. I,
0: I'm a big nerd, and I play I play Dungeons and Dragons. And if you Google search it, you would find it. It's the Anarchist Gamer. It, it's on Blogspot, Google's Blogger. Um and it's just me talking about different things that pertain to gaming, but also from a anarchist point of view. I, I I think I have a big rant on there about cyberpunk. So if you want to see me ranting about how stupid I think cyberpunk is and that whole genre is, yeah, you could check that out. So
2: look, I don't even know what cyberpunk is. <laughs> <laughs> some sort of like a geriatric group or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: All right, guys, man, I really appreciate this. This was this is a great conversation, and I want—I think we need to have more of these conversations. And like I said, it's a small platform, but maybe somebody can latch onto what y'all said. And I, I really appreciate y'all's time, man. Y'all are y'all are awesome folks, and I'm really glad that God has put y'all in my life in, in this fashion. And it's it's been great to get to know you guys.
0: Thanks for joining us this week on The Bad Roman Podcast. Be
2: sure to subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts to never miss an episode. And while you're at it, if you like what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd
0: simply tell a friend about the show, it really helps people find us. 100% of donations are given to local charities in Memphis, Tennessee. To learn more about The Bad Roman Project and to find show notes, please visit thebadroman.com.